Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing 15,000 Miles in a Catch by Captain Raymond Rallier de Batte, published in 1922. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner, or you can follow the link in the podcast description. And there for $5 a month, you can help support the podcast and keep these rare books in circulation. Now on to the story. Chapter 2 To heaven aloft on ridgy waves we ride, Then down to hell, descend when they divide. Virgil I told you I am not superstitious, Yet I confess that if I had any leanings that way, I should have regretted my audacity in starting upon a thirteenth day of the month. Soon after leaving Cherbourg, we had bad weather, and the voyage of the J.B. Charcot began with a most miserable and ridiculous series of misadventures. A strong southwest gale blew up the channel, and we could make no progress on our course, but kept tacking about for two days between the Cascettes and the Eddystone Light. Old Bontons, the bosun, we called him Old Bontons, for he was nearly twice the age of most of us at 43, though in the prime of life, shook his head very mournfully and with an expression of, I told you so. He knew it was flying in the face of Providence to start on the 13th. My brother and I were not exactly anxious, but alert to the fact that at the very outset of our long trial, our little boat was to be put to the test. We knew that if she failed us now and showed any sign of being unseaworthy, we should have no chance of success when we faced fiercer storms than this southwesterly gale within call of home. At the end of two days, I began to remember several things which we had omitted from our list of stores. I hankered after English matches and English jam. It seemed to me that this was an excellent opportunity to run into an English port to obtain these articles. Henry, my brother, laughed but agreed that it might be well to get those matches. So we made for Brixham, near Dartmouth. We anchored outside the harbour with the idea of testing our cables, knowing that if we ever reached the island of desolation, we should be at the mercy of those chains. The gale was now very strong, and we could see a great number of English vessels running for shelter inside the breakwater. I learnt afterwards that they were astonished to see us anchored on the wrong side of that protecting wall. They knew the danger of our position better perhaps than we did. At three o'clock in the afternoon, after our boat had been straining upon taut chains, one of the cables snapped, and we swung round in a perilous way. There was but one thing to do. It would have been mad to stay outside the harbour in such a plight. We slipped the second chain, and with close reefed sails and no jib, ran for harbour. Crowds of people were on the jetty, and we could hear them shouting to us as though we were in deadly peril. Through my glasses, I could see the crew of the lifeboat getting ready to come to our aid, they were waiting for us to hoist a signal of distress, but we were too proud to do that, and in any case, we had a strong objection to the idea of paying out all our pocket money in salvage fees. My brother and I agreed that we could do very well without the lifeboat. As a matter of fact, we did very badly, and we could not altogether escape the enthusiastic desire of the Brixham lifeboat men to rescue us willy-nilly. When we ran with the wind at a great pace past the breakwater, we found the harbour crowded with boats, and we plunged into the midst of them. The fishermen were shouting and swearing, and it was a scene of terrific confusion in a howling gale which plucked at the cordage of all those boats and made them sing like harp strings. 
We could not drop anchor in such a hurry, and, at a quick word from my brother, Bontemps sprang onto the deck of one of the boats between which we were tearing our way and made fast with a strong rope. Then the lifeboat crew could not be restrained. Doubtless they had been disappointed that we had not signalled to them for help, but their habit of saving life was strong upon them, and they could not miss such a heroic opportunity, though rather late in the day. It was not our lives they desired to save, but those of their compatriots. They sprang on board to make the line fast and moored us to a buoy where we could do no more harm. It had all happened in a few minutes, but it was long enough to do and to suffer a lot of damage. We were in a deplorable condition after that wild race for shelter. Our topmast, bowsprit and main gaff were broken and our bulwarks had been smashed as we jammed our way between the fishing smacks nor had our neighbours gone scot-free. To tell the honest truth, we had had no time nor room for courtesies, and we had left very ugly marks upon the hulls of several English boats. When we stopped our mad career, my brother and I looked at each other ruefully and laughed on the wrong side of the face. It was amusing, but not part of our programme of exploration. The wind had called the tune, and we should have to pay the piper. But we were staggered when next morning... The bill was presented to us. The Brixham lifeboat crew claimed £50 for assistance rendered, and several smack owners claimed heavy sums for damage sustained. Well, here was a pretty kettle of fish. We had not much more than enough money in our chest to pay for the mending of our own boat, and if we had to pay in addition such heavy fines, we should be poverty-stricken. My brother and I had several interviews with Coxon Sanders of the Brixham lifeboat. We pointed out to him that we had not called for help that his men had boarded our boat without invitation and that we had never been in the slightest danger. Of course, we desired to make a donation to each member of the crew in recognition of their friendliness, but £50 was, in our opinion, altogether beyond the mark. Mr Sanders was a splendid fellow, as honest as the day is long and most polite, but he told us in his quiet way that £50 was according to the usual scale of salvage service and that £50 we should have to pay. This wretched business kept us no less than 20 days in Brixham. Here we were kicking our heels about in a little English port when we ought to have been a thousand miles at least on our way to the desert island. It was both exasperating and humiliating. By a curious chance, it was Dr. Charcot's sister who came to our rescue. This lady, who was in England at the time, happened to read in a West Country paper an article entitled French Sailor's Peril. Being a quick-witted woman and a very kind one, she instantly went to work to extricate us from our difficulty. She took the advice of a lawyer in London and wired to us, don't pay. From our French consul in Dartmouth, Mr Collins, we had similar advice, upon which we acted in our negotiations with the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, who had now taken the matter in hand. They telegraphed us to pay £40, then pay £30. Then they issued their ultimatum, pay £20 or go into court. Naturally, we did not want to go into court. It would have wasted time, it would have cost more money, and it would have made us look still more ridiculous when the case was reported in the French papers. So we accepted the compromise and paid up the sum agreed to the lifeboat crew and another £100 for damages to boats. It had been a most expensive holiday at this English seaside resort. Indeed, we had felt like prisoners of war bargaining for our ransom. The only advantage we gained from our stay in Brixham was the acquisition of those English matches and of that English jam for which I had expressed a wish 
and some very pleasant conversation with our friends, the enemy. Cox and Sanders and his crew made us presents of fish and extended many courtesies to us after we had paid the money, and we parted with them on the best of terms. I must not forget to mention, however, that before leaving, we obtained a new member of our crew, La Rose. We were in need of another man, and there was a French brig in Brixham whose captain we visited with the request that he might spare us one of his hands. He mentioned La Rose at once. He told us that this youth was admirably honest, wonderfully strong, very brave, and very useful in every possible way. Such an accumulation of virtues made us a little suspicious. It seemed to us strange that the captain should be willing and almost eager to part with such a jewel. I mentioned that point. But captain, I said, how is it that you care to spare him to us? Oh, that is very simple, said the captain. He eats too much. My brother and I laughed very heartily. We had no desire to keep our crew on short rations and we were quite prepared to let LaRose satisfy his appetite. Little, however, did we know at that time the vastness of the appetite which we took on board with our new comrade. We had much to learn in this respect. It was the 6th of November that we got away from Brixham. The weather was in our favour now and with a good northwest wind and all sails set, we ran swiftly to Madeira. We stayed there five days having a very enjoyable time on that beautiful little island where we took in fresh water and fruit. One night, my brother had a misadventure which, for a moment or two, endangered his life and revealed a new point in La Rose's character. He was rowed on shore by this young seaman, and in landing upon the key steps in the darkness, he slipped and fell into the water. Fortunately, he was able to scramble out, but not with any help from La Rose. That simple fellow had no desire to see my brother drown before his eyes, but his thoughts moved slowly and his sense of politeness was more remarkable than his activity. He could not bring himself to grab the arm of his superior officer. He leant over his boat and said very quietly and courteously, Captain, uh, shall I give you my hand? My brother would certainly have gone to what the English sailors call Davy Jones's locker if he had had to depend upon the exhortations of La Rose. We had excellent weather with us when we left Madeira and steered a southwesterly course across the South Atlantic. It was a joy for us to find how well the J.B. Charcot made headway when all her sails were set, and we soon became full of affection for this trim little boat which was to be our home for the next two years. Naturally, we were in close quarters. There was no superfluous room on or below deck, and every inch of space was occupied. We had only one cabin, and my brother and I shared it for sleeping and eating with the men. It was about eight feet long, and when all six men were at the table, each of us had to be careful about our elbows. There were six bunks in this cabin, three on each side, and those were the places on the ship which a man might claim as his own, and where he might keep his private property. Those private belongings of the crew did not amount to much, but like all sailors, they had their little treasures, old letters from home, family photographs, a few knick-knacks given to them by their sweethearts or friends, a picture or two cut from a French paper, a tobacco pouch, a jackknife, a steel watch and such like. My brother and I had our own treasures and we had decorated the cabin in a way that pleased our eyes and reminded us of friends at home. A framed portrait of Dr. Charcot, the presiding genius of our expedition, hung on a bulkhead and the inscription which he had written across it was good to read. To the officers and crew of the Ketch Charcot, sincere wishes for success. In that cabin, my brother and I spent many hours through the days and weeks and years of our voyage poring over charts, consulting each other upon difficulties present or ahead, 
talking of old times when we were boys together, reading old books when we were not on watch, and when we were surrounded by the loneliness of the island of desolation, leaning with our elbows on the table and our faces in our hands, silent perhaps, but thinking of all those anxieties, hopes, disappointments and dangers which we had to face. Sometimes ill, sometimes very dejected, often very weary. It is strange what a world of thought may be contained within such narrow walls. This cabin was the parlour of our life in which we found society, recreation, amusement and rest. It was also our library. My brother and I are both fond of reading, and I remember that among the books I took was a set of Rudyard Kipling's works translated into French by the Vicomte Robert de Humières. They were a source of immense pleasure to me, and many times I marvelled at the knowledge of sea life and of the animal world, so intimate and so accurate, displayed by this English master of prose and verse. The Jungle Book was a source of continual entertainment, and I was charmed especially by such tales as the White Seal. I think I may say, without exaggeration, that I know a good deal about seals and sea elephants. I have had many Homeric combats with them. For months they were our only companions in the island of desolation. But Rudyard Kipling knows as much as I do, and has told what he knows in a way which I cannot emulate. Before leaving France, I had come across my chest of school books, which had never been opened since I left the Jesuit college where I had been educated. The idea came to me that it would be amusing to take them on board the J.B. Charcot and browse again over the leaves of these old class books which, as a boy, I had hated so much, but now remembered with affection. I took the chest with me, and for many nights at sea when I sat alone in the little cabin while my brother was keeping the watch on deck, I read, by the dim light of an oil lamp, my copies of Horace and Virgil, so that many familiar lines of those old masters now come singing through my brain. And at Kagulian, I took my Horace with me on many a solitary expedition into the interior, and in places where no human footsteps had ever trod before, where great grim rocks frowned above me, and where beyond no keel furrowed the grey and desolate sea, I sat alone with the Latin poet, reciting sometimes aloud his polished lines, enchanted by the melody of the verse and by his vivid word pictures. It was the first time I had ever enjoyed my textbooks and I went to school again in the island of desolation. Now that we were out on the broad waters of the South Atlantic rolling down to Rio, it will be well for me to give the reader some idea of our daily life on board and of the men who were making this adventure. We kept strict discipline. The smallness of our boat and crew made that even more necessary than if we had been on a great sailing ship. The watches were kept day and night from Boulogne to Melbourne. There were always three on deck, one at the helm, one at the lookout, and the officer of the watch. My brother and I took it in turns to be on deck, and as a rule, my brother had Bontemps the boatswain and Asno the cook to keep watch with him, while I had Agnes and La Rose. As in the English Navy, we had two dog watches, from 4pm to 6pm, and from 6pm to 8pm, so that the men, who had only four hours rest one night, might have eight hours the next, turn and turn about. As soon as daylight came, the men who had been sleeping would get out of their bunks for morning coffee and biscuits prepared by Asno, and it was then that we heard the noise which became so familiar to us, and so alarming, in spite of being familiar, as the months passed. It was the noise of La Rose eating ship's biscuits. The other men would be satisfied with one or two. La Rose was never satisfied with less than seven or eight. 
Steadily as a machine, his teeth would get to work, grinding, grinding at those big hard biscuits, so that when we heard him at work in the Atlantic or Indian Oceans or in the bays of Kogulian, my brother and I used to say, there goes the biscuit mill, time to get up. At meals, which we used to take as a rule at midday and at six o'clock in the evening, La Rose used to eat as much as all the rest of us put together. He was really no joke, you understand. Henry and I were terrified at the sight of such voracity. We had provisioned our ship for two years, but without reckoning such a monstrous appetite as this, it was an awful thought that our store of biscuits would give out if La Rose had his way with them. Yet we never had the heart to check him and to ask him to tighten his belt, which would have been sheer cruelty. He had a peculiar way of eating. He would seldom look at what he put into his mouth, but would ladle in the soup or do spade work with his knife and fork in a dreamy way, with a faraway look of mysticism in his eyes and with a spiritual expression on his face, as though he were indifferent to such a material thing as food. He had come on board not exactly thin, but certainly not fat. Before a month had passed, he swelled visibly. His cheeks became puffed out, his clothes were bursting, buttons jumped from him at mealtimes. Before another month had gone, he could no longer get into his trousers, and a new pair had to be made for him out of sailcloth. My brother Henry used to watch him with increasing terror, and although we laughed a good deal also, it was impossible to get rid of the haunting thought that La Rose would eat his way through the ship's stores before we had got to Kogulian and its seals. Believe me, I do not exaggerate the devouring appetite of this simple soul, whom I remember with great affection. After mealtimes, and when there was no work in hand, though we were not idle, the men preferred to slip away from the cabin to a little cubbyhole where they played cards for hours together, or sat smoking and chatting in their slow way. For sailors are not glib of speech. Bontons and Agnes were the two great smokers. The boatswain was never happy unless he was chewing a quid or sucking a pipe. It was his one joy in life, and if robbed of that, he became morose and miserable. Agne also was a slave to tobacco. My brother and I were free from that desire. I never smoke on sea or ashore, and Henry, curiously enough, and contrary to the usual custom of sailors, only smokes when he's on land. Agnes, as I said, was our musician. In his spare time, he used to get out his accordion and, either in the hole amidships or up on deck, he used to play the plaintive tunes of his native Normandy and sing the old folk songs or amuse his comrades with the gay little chansons of the boulevards and cafe concerts. Often I had seen him leaning against the bulwarks in the stern of the J.B. Charcot, a tall, strong figure with dreamy blue eyes and the wind tossing his fair hair, as we scudded along in a good breeze, and above the sound of the wind thrilling through our rigging, and the murmuring voices of the sea, and the cry of the seabirds, came the sweet, clear voice of Agnes, faintly as if it was carried away on the passing gusts into the eternal solitude. I think he found a great deal of quiet joy, poor lad, in that gift of song and music. Esno, the cook, was nearly always busy in his galley on deck, for when one meal was finished, another had to be prepared, and there was always La Rose to think of. Esno would not have qualified as chef at any hotel metropole. His methods were primitive, and he had no prejudices. There is an old English proverb, I believe, which says every man must eat a pack of dirt before he dies. Having voyaged with Esno, I have fulfilled my obligations in that respect. He had a passion for breaking things, or at least a fatal knack, and I am almost driven to the belief that he used to eat his cloths. At least they disappeared in a miraculous manner, for whereas we started out with a full stock of the most elegant dishcloths, 
They had vanished by the time we had reached Madeira, and he was reduced to using oakum to wipe up the plates and dishes. Presently, however, he saved himself some of this labour, for there were few plates and dishes that remained safe and sound. Even our big casserole or stewing pot was not proof against him, and he knocked a hole in it. It was his habit to conceal these breakages, and then, when taxed with them, he would say with an air of innocent surprise, Oh, but that was broken a long time ago, Captain. It was certainly a long time before we discovered the loss of our coffee roaster, in which, under heavy pains and penalties, ere snow was required to roast our beans each morning. We found out afterwards that this machine had had a fatal accident, and that our beans were cooked in the ordinary frying pan. I have a robust stomach, and imagination is not my strongest quality, but I used to avoid going within a respectable distance of the cook's galley before and for a little while after mealtime. But, after all, Esno was a good fellow and did his duty faithfully, according to his light. He was an orphan, and, as I have told you, only sixteen years of age. One could not be hard on him. I think, in some previous experiences, he had been ill-used, for during the first few weeks, whenever my brother spoke to him, up would go his elbow with an involuntary gesture, as though to shield himself from a blow. Of my brother he stood in wholesome fear, though there was no reason for that. Curiously enough, he did not care two sous for me, and would simply laugh when I suggested certain things to him in the way of culinary reform. Jean Bontemps was our handyman, a salt in every drop of his blood, and very wise with the wisdom of the sea. His senses were so tuned to the wind that he felt an approaching storm or calm in his marrow bones, and he could do all the practical work of seamanship such as sail-making or mending or the odd jobs of carpentry with expert skill. But, although obedient to command, he had a dogged way with him and had a stolid dislike to any new-fangled methods of handling a ship or doing the work in a ship. Pardon me, Captain, he would say, but I have never seen a job done in that style before, and I have been thirty years at sea. And I would answer him, Bon temps, mon ami. Before you are many months older, your eyes will be opened to many things you have never seen before. You'll have to get used to these little surprises, you know. Whereat, he would shake his head and go away to brood over the matter. I have forgotten to mention two other members of the crew not on the ship's list, but sharing our rations and our adventures. One was Patrick the dog, and the other was Puss in Boots, a black cat with one eye. Patrick had a history. He had sailed with my brother on a long voyage, but at Queenstown, where my brother's ship put in for a while, it was impossible to take the dog ashore on account of the English quarantine regulations. Reluctantly, therefore, Henry handed him over to a French fishing boat off Queenstown, in which Patrick was taken to Boulogne. For a year, perhaps, my brother lost sight of his faithful friend, but when I was on my quest for a boat in Boulogne, Henry suggested that I should try to get Patrick back again. By good luck I found the dog, and he was delighted beyond measure to find himself afloat again with his former master. Patrick was a fine fellow with such a natural gaiety that he helped to keep things cheerful on board, sharing our watches and keeping a sharp lookout on his own account. It was always Patrick who first caught sight of the porpoises at sea, and he would bark furiously to announce his discovery. Then too, when we hauled in fish, and we always trailed a line astern, he became excited to the point of madness when he saw the gleaming white bodies of our victims and would race up and down the deck and then stand quivering in every limb with his ears cocked up and his nose over the bulwark to see them taken on board. What shall I say further about our passage to Rio? 
To a landsman, it would seem devoid of incident and interest. He would wonder how six men could live mewed up in a small boat like the J.B. Charcot, day after day, night after night, with nothing to do, or so he would think, without beginning to quarrel and without hating each other, and going melancholy mad. A sailor will smile at such a gloomy picture. To a seaman there is continual interest in the sea that seems so monotonous to the landsman, plenty of work to do in the ship, and a world of thought to keep his brain busy. By day and night, the navigating officer had to make his observations to be entered each day in the log, and we were always reading the wind and weather with as much interest as a man ashore will keep his nose between the leaves of an exciting novel. The good breeze that was taking our small craft at a spanking rate across the great desert, where the waters were furrowed only by our lone keel, whipped the blood to our hearts, for it was good to know that we were making up lost time in such a gallant style. It was good also to stand at the helm and feel the throb of the boat in our grip as she met each rolling wave and took it like a seagull. The soul of the ship speaks to one. The man at the helm has a long conversation with her, and she has many things to tell. One knows when she is distressed, when she is moody and wayward. One shares her joyfulness when she springs forward lightly and fleetly with the wind singing through her sails. Other voices speak to the seamen. The mainmast and the mizzenmast and the bowsprit are living things. One sees how their strength is tried, how they quiver as the sails tug at them, how they thrill when all canvas is spread and the boat goes on a long chase, how every fibre of them is strained when the invisible arms of the storm winds try to tear them down or smash them into matchwood. The seaman's eye watches each rope and pulley and boom and spar. He knows the strength of them and the weakness, and around him all the time are the great waters and the great sky, talking to him also all the time through the day and night and the changing weather and the changing light. The stars are his friendly beacons. The sun is his watch and guide. The wind is never out of his thoughts. Sometimes it caresses him, and sometimes it threatens him, and in the whimper or the wail of it, he knows where is danger or distress. So it has always been with me, though I put it down in poor words. We do not speak of these things. It's the first time that I have uttered them, and they seem a little foolish now that they are written. No doubt a writing man would find much to tell about the beauty of the sea. We take all that for granted, and yet I think we feel it. I should like to tell of the great sunsets which fired the sky when we plunged southward and westward, of those colours, too rich and too deep for words, which flared up as the sun sank down and paved our way with gold and crimson and rose pink and emerald and amethyst and topaz and a thousand flower tints. Then the sky was a divinely wonderful ocean of beauty across which there sailed fairy ships with golden sails spread, and birds of paradise with magic wings of colour, and enchanted islands with mountains of precious gems and flame-tipped peaks. I should like also to describe some of these nights when I was officer of the watch, pacing the deck, when the dark figure of La Rose stood forward in the bows, and when Agnes stood at the helm, I suppose some men would make poetry of these nights and write them down in music. I could do nothing but say that the whole world of waters around us was flooded with a silver light and that our keel left behind a long wake of flashing phosphorescence where every one of those myriads of animalculae lit its tiny lamp and glowed with all the brightness of its little soul. That is but feeble, poverty-stricken language and I pray you not to laugh at a seaman who has gone beyond his depths.
We saw but few ships on the voyage. For many days together we seemed to be alone in the South Atlantic, but after we had crossed the line we passed near a big sailing ship called the Australia. I suppose a landsman can hardly understand the excitement that comes to one on a long voyage when one gets within hail of another vessel. In a little while, the two ships will have passed and disappeared beyond each other's ken, but during the time when the sails are within sight, there is a sense of companionship which is comforting, and though our words do not carry from one deck to another, we have conversation and are sociable. We hailed the Australia, and knowing that the first question asked by every ship is, how far from your last port, we got our answer ready, and in big white letters, painted on a board, showed the words 28 days from start point. We waited for the answering news, which would tell us how near we were to Rio, if the wind held in our favour. But we saw the captain throw up his hands with a gesture of amazement and perhaps of incredulity, and he gave us no message. I think he believed we were drawing the longbow at him, for, truth to tell, we had had luck with us all the way, and for a small boat like ours, it was something like a record run. We did not make Rio, however, so quickly as we had hoped for, for a calm made our sails hang limp for two days, and there was not a breath of wind to carry us into port. It was vexatious to lie outside in that listless way, for I need hardly say that we were eager to stretch our legs a little, and to get into that fair harbour, where the gaiety of civilised life in the white city beyond would be a very pleasant change to the long spell we had had, on the J.B. Charcot, since we had left Madeira. At last, we whistled up a breeze and ran right ahead into the anchorage. Here, all my pleasure was spoilt for a little while by a foolish accident. I was looking to the sails which the men were lowering and had my hand through sheer carelessness on the cogwheel of the winch. Suddenly, the cable chains tightened as the boat dragged upon them and when the winch turned, my hand was caught by the teeth of the cogwheel. It was quite dark, so that neither my brother nor the sailors saw what was the matter with me when I cried out. I had to explain and shout to them to turn the wheel the other way. When my hand was released, I found that the flesh was torn into strips. I bound it up as best I could and next day went ashore and showed my wounds to a French doctor who'd stitched them up very skillfully. But it was a long time before my hand healed and I shall bear the scar as long as I live. We were twelve days at Rio and took on board more water and fresh fruit. By good luck and the generosity of good friends, we escaped all harbour dues, which otherwise would have been a heavy tax upon us. The French consul, to whom we paid our respects and told our story, went to the chief customs officer of Rio, and when he told him the character and object of our voyage, he was kind enough to waive all fees. Although we had a good time at Rio, we slept every night on board in our close little cabin, and it was here that we enjoyed our Christmas dinner, which was made very happy by the receipt of letters from home the last we could hope to get for at least 18 months or more. In honour of the day, my brother Henry, who is a first-class cook, relieved Asno of some of his duties. There were painful discoveries in the galley and made a pudding which was not only enjoyable at the time, but a delightful memory. La Rose was, of course, in seventh heaven and his eyes were more dreamy than ever when he sat in front of his second helping and smiled at the glory of what had gone before. His only regret was that all good things come to an end. We also cracked a good bottle of wine and drank to the success of our little venture and to the dear people at home. A few days later, we said farewell to Rio de Janeiro with its hill-climbing city girdled by green forests and sheltered by great mountain ranges with its gay people and its beautiful women and its spacious streets. We had lived very quietly on our boat 
seeing the sights by day but unknown to all the French residents save the gallant French consul who had saved us the harbour Jews. I have been told lately by Dr. Charcot that when he passed that way a year later and spoke of the little French fishing catch which had lain in the harbour before going on the long trail to Melbourne, the French community was astonished. If only we had known, they said. But after all, we did not want to be celebrated. Our work lay ahead of us and we had done nothing to talk about. It was on the 1st of January 1908 that we sailed out of the harbour of Rio between the two great headlands and past the sugar loaf and from that date our luck changed. It was not long before the J.B. Charcot was put to a severe test. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. and We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.